thank you, Tim, for that prayer of supplication. And we do appreciate that update, though tragic as it was, of Pastor Tun. And certainly want to commit to pray for his family, his wife, his children, and for that church family as well, knowing the deep impact that has on all of them. And they'll need our prayers for some time to come. Thank you for coming this morning. What an honor it is for me to open God's Word for you and pray that it will speak to your heart as it has, uh, as I have been in uh, preparation of the message. We're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke. We're examining the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the perspective of the Gospel writer Luke. And hopefully as we do, we gain a deeper sense of who Jesus Christ is and appreciation for who He is and what He means to us. And, and, and the, the more that you know a person, the deeper your love come, becomes for that person. And that's how intimacy is, is developed, is through knowledge and getting to know them. And, and I hope and pray that through these messages out of the Gospel of Luke, and of course we will borrow uh, from some of the other Gospel writers to, to supplement what Luke is saying, we want to get the full picture. I want to know him better. I want to love him more. I want to serve him with, with greater diligence and fervor. And I want that for you as well. And so, you know, if there's a theme, it's simply this, follow me. As we go further in the gospel, as you learn more about Christ, as his adult ministry begins to develop, and, and you see that in his ministry he came to bring salvation and to unfold a wonderful plan of redemption for lost and, and sinful humanity, but he was also coming to call a people to himself. And at the heart of the Christian gospel is that, that very solemn call when Jesus will say, and he says it to everyone that he chooses to be a part of the family of God, and it simply is, follow me. And at some point, dear friend, if you have not made that decision consciously to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily and follow Christ to be a, a, a true, sincere follower of Christ, a member of the body of Christ, and a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to ad address that question. You've got to decide, will I follow him, give lip service, or turn and reject him? So we're going to continue in Luke Gos Luke's Gospel chapter 2. But as you well know in the previous message, we had to go over to Matthew to borrow a perspective that Matthew right into a primarily uh, a Jewish audience. Uh, unlike Luke, who's writing primarily to Gentile readers, Matthew is wanting the Jewish people to understand that this Jesus, the Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah of the world, was indeed qualified to fulfill that role by virtue of, of his biblical re requirements and, and, and qualifications. And also the fact that as his life began to unfold from the very beginning, beginning with his birth, he was fulfilling ancient prophecies given to the Jews through the prophets of God. And we've already seen some of that because we saw where the prophet had already prophesied where Jesus would be born. So let me ask you to hold your place in Luke's Gospel chapter 2 and, and join me back over in Matthew's Gospel chapter 2, where we were examining from that perspective the birth of Christ and his early days and months as we, as we move forward. So what we're looking at in, in today's message, we'll bring this portion to a conclusion, is the, the, the entrance of the Messiah into the world. His very early 
days, if you will. So the stage is set, as we, as we, if you recall from the last message, the stage is set for, for Jesus' uh, arrival. We, we saw in, in the previous message in chapter 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to, to Mary and Joseph. And, and in fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah 5.2, where it pro prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And then the stage also included the Magi's surprise visit and announcement. When all of a sudden these mysterious and yet the powerful men from the Orient show up, probably a large contingency of them with their soldiers and, and all the support staff to come with them. So it probably was more than the three that traditionally we have surmised just from the three gifts given to Jesus. And so they show up with this, all of a sudden out of nowhere, they show up in Jerusalem, create quite a stir, and, and they have a surprising, not appearance, not only appearance, but they have a surprising message. They say, where is this one who's born the king of the Jews? And of course we understand that upset. A very fragile, a very insecure, a very dangerous monarch by the name of Herod the Great. And so the stage is set by the Magi's surprise visit, but the stage is also set, as we saw, if you recall from Matthew chapter 2, from the monarch's murderous rage. When he thought that the Magi had tricked him and had gone back home instead of coming back to Jerusalem to give them the exact location of this child king, they instead went another way at the instruction of God in a vision. And now Herod is paranoid and he is absolutely enraged that these foreigners have disrespected him and now he is doing the unthinkable. He commits a, an act of infanticide unrivaled in that time as he gives orders for all the young Jewish boys in the region of Bethlehem. Not just the town of Bethlehem, but for the whole region going from the south up as far north as Ramah. And in doing so fulfills yet another prophecy given out of Jeremiah that talks about a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children as young boys under the age of two, two and under were being slaughtered. Innocent. Simply because of a deranged and devious king. And so the stage is set by the monarch's murderous rage. You know, I have to pause and just give commentary. I wonder why there has not been lamentation across the plains in the states of, of, of uh, the United States of America. When we know full well from the news in the state of New York that the legislators on the day that they passed legislation whereby it authorized a mother at her whim and will to kill her perfectly healthy child simply because it was her prerogative for whatever reason to take the life. Folks, that's infanticide. And they were standing and cheering and the governor himself standing up and lauding and praising them for, for this supposedly great legislation that protects the rights of women. God help America. We've lost our way and decide that it's quite all right to kill innocent babies. And yet that's what Herod was doing and it fulfilled the prophecy. So the stage is set by the Magi's surprise visit and announcement. The stage is set by the monarch's murderous rage. He's, his target is to get Jesus. He's not going to be satisfied until he's killed every one of the boys under two years old within the whole possible realm. But what Herod didn't know 
God already knew. God already arranged because the stage is set by the Messiah's perilous delivery or dilemma and miraculous delivery. Let me just stop there for a second because you see, in all of this, we should be absolutely amazed at the length that God goes through to bring forth a, a, a redemption, a plan of redemption to us through His only begotten Son. All of these things that are happening, all these dramatic events, all the characters that are brought, up, brought onto the stage. And folks, we're just in the early days of the Messiah's life. It's a very elaborate plan that God is unfolding and, and to introduce His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who would be the only hope for lost humanity, the only Savior that mankind would know that would rescue them, us, from the awful penalty of sin. What love God demonstrates when He goes to such lengths to unfold such a plan. And yet we know full well that God will never force His Son on anyone. You are never coerced, arm twisted, or cajoled to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Every person who comes to Christ comes by faith. John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them was given the power to become sons of God. So you believe and you receive, God does not force his son on anyone. So now as we move further, and I got you back in Matthew chapter 2 because I think it's important that we look at the whole picture. The last time we saw Herod issuing the order, soldiers going out in the whole region of Judah around Bethlehem and, and, and the proximity of there, slaughtering innocent boys. And God knew that this was going to happen. And so as we look back in chapter 2, I'll take you to verse 12. In verse 12, God is speaking to the Magi. He says, Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So God has taken care of the Magi there. Now look at verse 13. God has not taken his eye off of his darling son, the Savior of the world. God knows full well and has known from the beginning of time that Herod was going to lose it. He knew that Herod would issue this terrible, murderous command. So God has a plan of delivery, and I think it's interesting because it fulfills prophecy. In verse 13, Now when they had departed, speaking of the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, remember the child always comes first, flee to Egypt. Ha! Huh. Egypt? We're out in the middle of studying the glorious exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt, and yet here's God taking his son and the, earthly, the son's earthly family, Mary and Joseph, down into Egypt. Take him, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. This is before Herod has issued his order. And so now we see the preservation of Israel's rightful king as it unfolds here. And you'll see where it fulfills prophecy. God, in, God intervenes to ensure the protection of the Messiah. As, as we see right here, God has a plan. He sends the young family fleeing down into Egypt. And as you will see as we read further, look at verse 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Let me just stop and give a footnote on behalf of the character of this man, Joseph. 
Joseph is really quite a man. He's a man of faith and he's a man of integrity. What a man of, of absolute character. He's a man who hears from God. You notice how many times God has spoken to Joseph by an angel in a dream? Have you noticed that every time God speaks to Joseph, he does exactly what Joseph said. Joseph was given thought to put Mary aside when he found out that she was pregnant and he knew that he wasn't the father. He could, by all rights of the law, have divorced her or killed her, had her killed, stoned to death. But instead, God says, no, you go ahead and take this woman because that child that she's carrying is indeed the Savior of the world. And you know what Joseph did? He took her as his wife. Now God says, take the child, take his mother, and go flee right now in the night. Get out of here and go to Egypt. Because in verse 15 it says, and, and they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. This is a fulfillment of prophecy given in Hosea 11.1. Historically, in Hosea 11.1, 1, he was speaking of the nation of Israel. God did bring Israel as a nation whom God fondly called his son out of Egypt. But the absolute fulfillment of that prophecy comes when he allowed his son, the Savior, the Messiah, to be in Egypt and he would bring him out of Egypt where he would be protected. Mary and Joseph make an arduous long trip about 75 miles down to the Egyptian border. I wish... Ramon was back in here. He had to take David out and just solve it. We could get some Egyptian expertise here. But anyway, about 75 miles to the border of Egypt. Wasn't an easy trip. And they're trying to hurry up. And you don't hurry up too much when you got a young infant, which you are at least a young toddler. And yet they make the trip. And they get to Egypt. And, and, and some commentators suggested that they probably didn't stop at the border just for safety's sake, just to be on the safe side. They proceeded probably another 100 miles. And probably the, the destination they were achieve, or, or seeking to achieve was Alexandria, a city in the land of Egypt established by Alexander the Great. And, and after his establishing that city, he made it a, a, a legal refuge for Jews, even under his reign. And hence the town was named Alexandria. It's probably the destination that Joseph and Mary were headed to as Jews in Egypt. But nonetheless, God got them into Egypt so that this, so they're, they're fleeing. They're running for their lives at the instruction of God. The plan's unfolding. I read a story about a, a Sunday school teacher, third graders, and she talked through the whole story of, East, uh, of Christmas and she instructed the boys and girls to draw their rendition of the Christmas story. Things that stood out to them. She was going around looking at the ones and they had, you know, Bethlehem. They had the, 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 the manger. Some had the angels. You know, some had the shepherds. And, you know, the wise men and all that. One little boy caught her attention. He was drawing. He had a jet plane. He had four windows on the side of that jet plane. And there was people's heads in each one of the windows. And this caught the teacher's attention. She said, son, what, I don't understand. What, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? And he said, well, shoot, teacher, this, this is their flight to Egypt. Mark <laughs> it like that. She said, well, who are the people in the windows? Started at the back. She said, well, that's Joseph. And then there's Mary. And then the next is, is baby Jesus. He said, well, what about the fourth person in the front? She said, and he said, well, oh, yeah, teacher, that's Pontius the pilot. So I... All of a sudden, it all clearly made sense. But they, I don't think they flew by jet to Egypt. But the fact is, God got them out of harm's way. 
And God is protecting them. And he's making sure that his redemption plan is going to be fulfilled. And here's something else commentators have suggested. And this is the ingenious sovereignty of our God and his providential care for those that he intends to utilize. You know, remember the wise men came from the east and they brought expensive gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's very possible that somebody said, you know what, that would have been wise women. They would have brought diapers, wipes, and blankets. But anyway, nonetheless, it's very possible that Joseph used the, 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 the value of the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh, to fund their exodus into Egypt. God covers all the bases. It wasn't just for symbolism. And for the ornateness of, of these beautiful, wonderful, valuable gifts, they were cashing them in probably to pay for food and, and lodging and, and everything else. But God had everything covered. Just when He leads, just like He leads us, He always covers the bases. So we see God intervening to ensure the protection of the Messiah, but then also it doesn't stop there. God never intended for Jesus to grow up in Egypt. He never intended for Jesus to be influenced by the Egyptian culture. Jesus didn't come primarily to save the Egyptians. He came to his people first. And so, I want you to see how God providentially returns Jesus to Nazareth. And so to do that, in Matthew chapter 2, let's jump over to verse 19. Matthew records for us there in verse 19 of chapter 2 of Matthew, but when Herod was dead, and folks, historians tell us that Mary and Joseph and Jesus weren't in Egypt long. Because most accurate uh, dates of Herod's death, a painful, agonizing death, by the way, was probably around 4 B.C. It's, it's more than likely the, the, the Christ child and his family were in Egypt for maybe just a matter of months. Because the word came back to Joseph. Verse 19, But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child. Jesus is not an infant. He's probably something like we'd call a, a toddler. Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. There again, look at verse 21. Joseph didn't say, You know what? We're comfortable down here. Got a nice spread down here. Pretty good life. These Egyptians treat us pretty good. I'm really not anxious about taking that squalling baby back up another hundred miles or so. No, I'm just injecting. That's not in your scripture or anybody's, okay? Verse 21. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. He's back home. Look at verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Why, shucks, why? Because Herod the Great was the tormentor. He was the terror, right? <laughs> History tells us that Archelaus picked up where his daddy left off. He was just as deranged and just as evil. And Joseph had heard about this. And any intentions to settle back in Bethlehem area, or even Jerusalem, which is only about five miles, Joseph not going back home. Why? Because it fulfilled prophecy again. You'll see. So when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of, G of Galilee. And look at verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Huh. Where have we heard that before? We were thoroughly introduced to Nazareth in Luke's gospel in chapter 1 because that was a hometown. 
There was a hometown originally of Mary and Joseph. They're just coming back home. So you see God providentially working out his plan here. Having fulfilled his, his divine plan, God delivers his son safely home. And Jesus' earthly mission of redemption is not thwarted by men's ridicule. And I say that because I think I brought this out in the first message when we talked about Nazareth. Nazareth is not the kind of town that you know, a lot of famous people came from. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word Nazarene meant like a shoot. Like not even the original tree, just a shoot off of it. Insignificant. And so we know that this was not a very famous town. And in fact, it was looked upon with derision. And that was a stumbling block for a lot of people later because when Jesus was introduced, they oftentimes they'd say, this is Jesus of Nazareth. You know, like Charlie from Roxborough. <laughs> Roxborough. <laughs> it amuses me sometimes when I try to tell people where I'm from. They'll say, you know, I, you know say, have you ever heard of the town of Roxborough? They'll, you know, they want to say, yeah. Because they want to make me feel like, you know, I'm significant. Uh, yeah, and they say, I, 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 don't, don't worry. The rest of the world hadn't either. But it's there, okay? I just tell them north of Durham, okay? So, here, Charlie from Roxborough, Jesus of Nazareth. And you may recall, I thought it was interesting because Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, John's gospel all point out the fact that this indeed was the town that Jesus originally was his hometown, if he was, if he were. But, but in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 45, when Philip went to find Nathanael and said to him, we found, the, we found him of whom Moses says in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> and Nathanael betrays everybody's attitude about the town of Nazareth. He says in verse 46, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now I don't want to slam anybody's hometown. There are some places I would question, you know, can anything good come? You know, I know Sister Wendy is up in Michigan right now. I found out when we went up there on a missions trip, there's a town in Michigan, up in Michigan, called Hell. <laughs> and so, you know, you be careful if somebody tells you to go to Hell. They may be telling you to go on up north, find Michigan, and go there's a place, a little town. But can anything good come out of Hell? But, but anyway, I... I I lose my place. Nazareth had that kind of association that was derision and people, you wouldn't think of the Messiah. Growing up, they're in a town like Nazareth. So, but here's the thing, folks. See, that, that even against the, the flow of derision, you know, he, he's got a strike going against him already. He, he's got another strike in the fact that he's, he's already, Matthew's bringing this out. Matthew's bringing this out, by the way, in verse 23, when he says he shall be called a Nazarene. He's fulfilling the prophecies given there. We don't know exactly. This is a verbal tradition of prophecies. It's not recorded in the Old Testament, but it's spoken of. And therefore, these were probably prophecies that people passed along verbally, but was not recorded in the Scripture. But there was talk about, in fact, the town of Nazareth, is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's how insignificant it was to the Jews. But despite the derision, despite the rejection, Jesus has already been rejected by the king, Herod. He's been ignored by the, the Jewish leaders. 
Nobody else went out to see him in Bethlehem. So we see the preservation of Israel's rightful king. He's brought him out of Egypt. He's bypassed Jerusalem and brought him back to Nazareth just as God intended the plan to be. Next, we're going to be looking in chapter 2 of Luke. So go back over to Luke, if you will, now. We'll be focusing from here on in Luke until God takes us to another gospel. But anyway, the uneventful progression of the child king. Did you notice that? The uneventful progression of the child king. So we go back to Luke's gospel, and I'll take you back to verse 39, where I left you hanging. Because according to Luke, Mary and Joseph had fulfilled all the requirements there, had Jesus circumcised and dedicated. Mary had her ceremonial cleansing, so they're ready to head back home. So if we were just relying on Luke's rendition of the gospel story of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have known about the wise men, we wouldn't have known about Herod's, uh, you know, uh, uh, rage of infanticide. We wouldn't have known about the exodus into Egypt and out of Egypt. And, uh, and you see how important it is to look at the whole picture. So we pick up at verse 39. And Luke simply says, when, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, just like we saw Matthew said, Nazareth. Okay? So, so as we look at the uh, and I emphasize the uneventful progression of the child king. Because Luke is helping us to see that Jesus is developing. But there's nothing supernatural and, and outstanding and phenomenal about his childhood. I'll explain why. Because you see, Luke writes from the perspective of a physician. He is a physician according to the scriptures. He wants us to see that this child physiologically develops like any other child. He was an infant, grew to a toddler. Jesus had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk, you know, and, and, and all of that. The scriptures portray him as a very normal childhood despite the attempts by creative, I put that in quotation, writers to enhance the story such as the Apocrypha, which is part of the Catholic Bible. There are uninspired stories there, some, some that really just challenge you to think. According to the Apocrypha's writings, Apocryphal writings, Jesus as a little boy. This is, these are the stories that came along. Jesus as a little boy would make birds out of clay, little images, and then he would they'd fly. They'd be turned into real, real birds. And there's another story that came out of Jesus' early childhood where he found a dead bird and he said to his friends, look at this. It came alive and took off and flew away. Ha, that's pretty entertaining, isn't it? That kind of enhances the story a little bit, right? Oh, well, wait a minute. Some of these stories even betrayed and, and contradicted his character. For instance, one day, according to one of the stories in the Apocrypha, Jesus, a little, another little boy bumped into him and Jesus killed him. And then when his parents complained to Mary and Joseph, Jesus struck them blind. Oh, another story. Some robbers, would-be robbers, approached Mary and Joseph, and Jesus took a piece of the swaddling clothes and whoop, waved it, and they took off terrorized into the wilderness. That's the kind of little boy king you want, right? That's the kind that gets your attention. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of stories. But guess what? They're entertaining, but they're not true. The Gospels lend no support to such miracles by Jesus the Christ child. He just grew up. And look what Luke says in verse 40. He says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He was a healthy, small-town lad. 
And Luke is careful to highlight the normalcy of Jesus' humanity. He was human. He was fully man, even from the time he was a little boy. But Luke also describes his divine development. He is, develop he is the Son of God, and he is growing normally as a human, but he's also growing. Don't miss what Luke is saying there in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. In, in, in some translations don't say spirit, granted. He's filled with wisdom. Don't miss that. Because as, you're going to see why. Because as Jesus is growing in, in normal physical manners, he is also growing as son of God. One reliable scholar pointed out in his commentary that all in the incarnation of Christ, Jesus' deity and his humanity are being mediated and balanced by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, there was no point to give Jesus all the power as a toddler, as a young child. There was no need for Jesus to have full knowledge of his identity when he's three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old. But as he is growing, the Spirit of God is gradually mediating to him divine knowledge of his origin and his relationship with God the Father and his infinite wisdom. So that by the time he's entering adulthood, we'll see this. He's not only developed fully, and, he's, and Luke made a point as a physician. He, he developed, he's strong. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, though fully human, he is sinless? Amen? He's sinless. He doesn't suffer from the consequences of, of, of sin that brings so much sickness into the lives of many of us. Now he suffered from sin, but it's the sin of others. So he probably was an, an amazingly healthy young lad, strong young man as he's growing and developing. And so we see this, and Luke wants us to see that. Jesus is growing in, in, in filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. He's not only gaining divine wisdom, but by the mediation of the Holy Spirit, he is developing in grace. How do we know that? Supported by the, the, the Gospel of John. When John. Listen to what John says in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John picked up on that. Luke picks up on that. Anybody that knew him, his, his parents, anybody close to him, could see there's something different about this boy. And then we're going to see how different as we move further. So we've looked at the preservation of Israel's rightful king. We've looked at the uneventful, normal progression of the child king. Could we finally take a minute and let's look at the puzzling proclamation of the young Messiah king. Some of the things I just brought to your attention about the fact that Jesus is developing fully normally. He's a normal human being. There's nothing about him. Some of the medieval drawings and paintings would have Jesus, you know, walking around and there's this glowing halo over his head. Folks, <laughs> there's nothing in the Gospels that talked about and Mary beheld there was a son with this halo over his head. As people's creative imaginations, there's nothing that would have caused him 
where he would have stood out from other kids in school and things like that. But then, as he approaches adulthood, things are beginning to happen, and Luke gives us an incident to demonstrate that. And so in chapter 2, I direct your attention to verse 41, because in this, and by the way, if you had your remote control in your hand, and you're watching the movie recorded in Luke, you're hitting the fast-forward button here. Because he's gone from being a young boy for 11 years. He's 12 years old now. Now some of you, you know, kids may be saying, big deal. Yeah, 12. I want 16. Right, anyway, 12 is significant. And, and Luke points this out. Because a boy at the age of 13 in the Jewish culture, is transitioning from boyhood to manhood. Such an important transition that fathers are pouring wisdom into their sons. They are teaching tradition to their sons because they're knowing they're becoming a man. They hold a special ceremony, a bar mitzvah, that celebrates the transition of, of, of this boy to manhood. Okay, so hold on to that. So let's, let's pick up in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. That just tells you this is the character. This is the godly, faithful nature of Mary and Joseph. They didn't miss a year. They were always, and that's not an easy thing, folks. You're talking about a trek of some 80 miles. How many of you would walk 80 miles or ride a donkey 80 miles to go to church? <laughs> I wouldn't. I'm just, I'm just confessing. It took about three or four days from Nazareth to Jerusalem. They didn't travel by themselves. We see that they, Jewish people typically traveled in, in, in large groups. So a bunch of the relatives and friends from Nazareth, they're all traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. They do that for fellowship. They do it to share the cost of the trip. And then probably primarily for safety. Because those roads were riddled with potential robbers and thieves. But nonetheless, they make this trip. So, let's, let's read on the story. You know this story, but let's, let's look at it in detail because it re reveals a lot to us about this new, developing, almost young man. And by the way, when it talks about going to the Feast of the Passover, if you were a nominal Jew, you could just go to the Passover, spend the day, get it all done, sacrifice the lamb, leave. But a good, devout Jew would take advantage of the whole traditional Passover season which not only included Passover, but right on the hills of Passover was Pentecost. Right on the hills of that was the, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. So probably they were there for a full eight days. They got it all in. And so it says that they were there for the Feast of the Passover. And when he, speaking of Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And I believe this year they're teaching him everything or, or reinforcing everything they've taught because they know next year he's going to be transitioned to a man. And when they had finished the days, that's why we know it wasn't just one day. And when they had finished the days, as they, speaking of Mary and Joseph and the rest of the entourage, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. So this is the first left behind story or home alone or where, in, Jerusalem, in Jerusalem alone I guess would be the version he's there 12 years old in the capital of Israel if you will and Joseph and Mary did not know it 
But supposing him to be to have been in the company. Remember, they're tra traveling a large entourage, hundreds of people. Sometimes the women traveled in a large group, the men traveled in a separate large group because they talk about men's stuff, women's stuff, you know, and, and, and I'm just supposing, but they, they were known to do that. So Mary's traveling with the women group, you know, ahead of the men or, or behind the men, and, and she's thinking, you know, Joseph's got Jesus. And so she's, you know, talking with her friend, going on. And then, you know, um, uh, Joseph, probably in his group, going along, talking to his friends, saying, yeah, Jesus is over there with Mary and her at the women group. But, but so, so they, they're making this assumption. Verse 44, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. They're looking around now. End of the day, everybody's settling down. Each family gets at their own campsite and everything. Mary's there. Joseph's there cooking dinner. Where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. I, I thought he was with you. Ah! I can identify with Jesus. I want to just confess something to y'all. See, there were 11 children in my family. We had a little Rambler station wagon or something like that. And, I, and my mother had a custom every Sunday after church. We'd all line up in the seats of that station wagon and we could stay in the back. And she would turn around at the seat and dad's at the driver's side and one little, two little, three little Indians, four little, five little, six little Indians. No, she, she didn't. Not really. One, one Sunday, one Sunday in their haste to get home, they left me at church. I don't know if that was a sign that I was supposed to be a preacher one day. I doubt it. It's probably because I was being irresponsible. Should have been in the car. Anyway, they left me at church. And so they get home, and Mom says, you know, where's Charlie? And she says, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Die! He's in church. Well, we'll be going back tonight. <laughs> not quite, not quite. I think the preacher brought me home. I, somebody, I, yeah, but anyway, they miss me. That's what matters. Pastor <laughs> Marcus, thinking, oh Lord, <laughs> he didn't take his medicine this morning. <laughs> so uh, his parents' frightening dilemma is that they've left their son back in Jerusalem. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem. Seeking him. All right, so there's a day they were traveling out. A day traveling back. Uh, the reason I'm specifying that is because it says now, it, verse 46, and now so it was after three days they found him in the temple. They didn't look for three days. Now they would have. But just understand, a day traveling out, day traveling back, and then a day looking around Jerusalem and they found him in the temple but don't miss this. Sitting in the midst of the teachers at the Passover, the Pentecost, that season. Listen, some of the finest Jewish minds in the nation of Israel would be in the temple. I mean, if you ever wanted to, to, to pick the brains of the cream of the crop of Israel, there's where you'd be. And guess where they found Jesus? In the temple. Sitting, both listening and asking them questions. 12 years old. He's not, you know, at 12 years old, I may have sat still for a Tarzan movie. But anyway, he's sitting there listening. But not only that, Luke points out he's asking questions of some of the highest regarded scholars in Judaism in the whole land. 
all who heard him were astonished. Remember what we said? The Spirit of God is mediating the wisdom of God. By the time Jesus is ready to move into adulthood, he's gained full divine wisdom. And he's asking them questions that they're scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute. We might not have the answer to that 12-year-old boy. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Then mom and dad show up. So when they saw him, I don't think they just rushed right up. I think they were taking the scene in. And Joseph and Mary are hearing their son asking these scholars questions and listening intently to their answers. They were amazed. And then his mother does the mother thing. Don't you know how you turn? But you start now. She calls us all the time on our deck. <laughs> Not quite. But I'm, I'm, don't lose the emotion of it, ladies and gentlemen. And, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father, that's speaking of his earthly guardian, Joseph, and I have sought you anxiously. That's normal. Okay? And look at Jesus' reply in verse 49. Don't miss this. And he said to them, Why? Remember, she asked why. Now he's asking why. So, Jesus says, Why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father? He's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about Jehovah God. The creator of the world. His Father in heaven. Suddenly now, the Son has full revelation of not only His absolute true identity, yes, He is human. He is the Son of Mary. But He is also the Son of God and He knows that it's not coincidence. He knows that He is on a mission. And He says, don't you know that I must be about my Father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them because they didn't know what he knew. Now I did question, we know back in Luke's gospel chapter, uh, in chapter 1 verse 32 and 35, the angel did tell Mary that this boy that you're going to, this baby you're going to conceive and, and bear is, is, is the son of the highest, the most high. He is the son of God. So she had heard the angel say, the father of this child is God. But in her, infant, in her finite mind, she could not really grasp the fullness of that totally, as is re re revealed here. So, we see that, and, and, and it's important, folks, some of you are thinking, why did Jesus linger? Didn't you understand? Well, first of all, Jesus lingering was not disobedience, and it wasn't sinful mischievousness. He's sinless. We'll see that played out in just a second. His getting left behind was due to parental misunderstanding. Can you all accept that? Parents, it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Sometimes we just don't make, sometimes we make mistakes. And so their misunderstanding was the reason Jesus was left behind, but Jesus was behind because the Father wanted him there. And then so we see the parents frightened in dilemma, but then also Jesus' incredible demonstration and declaration as we see here there in verse 47 and beyond. When Jesus is basically saying, don't you get it? Don't you get it? I'm where I'm supposed to be. I am son of God. And, and, and I'm supposed to be here 
learning so that I can go on with my mission. So do they leave him there? <laughs> Not their 12-year-old boy. Look at verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them both, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. Jesus, as a child, filled with divine wisdom now, he still is absolutely sinless. He does not disrespect. He does not disobey. He didn't say, I'm not going back. I don't go back to Nazareth. I'm in Jerusalem. He packed his bag and went on back to Nazareth. God the Father had revealed to him something that would propel him on into his adulthood ministry. And look at verse, and, and look at, there in verse 51. Just like it, it was recorded in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19, where the shepherds came and declared what they had seen by the angels that night that Jesus was born. Do you remember? They were telling everybody what they'd seen. It said, Mary kept those things in her heart. She didn't fully understand what her son had just told her. She just took it and kept it in her heart. It wouldn't come to full revelation to her of who this boy is that she bore as a tiny infant until his, later in his earthly ministry, she too would become one of his followers. She too would stand at the cross just like the old prophet had prophesied, like a sword going into her heart. She would see who he was and what it would cost him one day. In verse 52, Luke closes out, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Amazing wisdom, good health, and he was blessed with the grace of God. This is Jesus. This is the Savior we love and trust. And if you've not come to a point in your life, and we're just now getting started, I'm excited to begin to rediscover the qualities and attributes and, and the, 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 the happenings and the occurrences and the teachings. I want to rediscover Jesus. I want to go deeper in my knowledge of Him. I want to grow in my love for Him. I want that to propel me in my ministry and, and witness for Him. And I want the same for all of us as we move forward. As I said... There was that day in your life, if you are a sincere, authentic believer in Jesus Christ, there was that day. I was 24 years old. Had been introduced to Christianity. Had been baptized in the church. Was on a church roll. But I never had come to that point of faith where I heard Jesus say to me, as a 24-year-old young man about to become a father, Charlie, it's time for you to come and follow me. And I'll never forget that day. That was a moment of absolute transformation in my life. I've never been the same person since then and will never be because I've chosen by faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I'm not pursuing my own ambitions and goals in life. My one goal is to follow Him. To serve Him. 
That involves studying my Bible. That involves praying regularly. That involves being in church with other believers, worshiping Him. That includes serving Him. That includes going out wherever God may open a door for me to talk to somebody about Jesus. And folks, those are not the qualifications of a preacher. Those are the qualifications of a follower of Christ. And unless you have made that decision and backed it up by your commitment, I stand here today to tell you you won't see heaven. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. And you know what the will of God, the Father is? Is that you deny yourself Take up whatever cross that God has in store for you each day and you follow Jesus where he leads you, do what he tells you to do, and make his will the priority of your life. Then you can lay your head on the bed, on the pillow at night and know that you are truly a child of God, a part of the family of God, and one glorious day will be a part of that wonderful, eternal, kingdom of God. Jesus is going to say over and over and over follow me. Are you following yourself? Your own desires? Your own ambitions? Your own sinful, selfish wants? Are you following the crowd? Are you following after the trends of the world? Are you following after career? Are you following after educational aspirations? Are you following after the wishes of, 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 of family members? Folks, it can only be one way. Jesus' way. Are you following Him?